In this episode of Scaling Postgres, we talk about unlogged tables, pgstat.io, type constraints, and text types. I'm Creston Jamison, and this is Scaling Postgres, episode 253. All right, I hope you, your friends, family, and coworkers continue to do well. Our first piece of content is PostgreSQL Unlogged Tables. Look, ma, no wall. This is from crunchydata.com, and they're talking about unlogged tables, which means that nothing is being logged to the wall. Now, that has some advantages and some disadvantages. The main advantages that they list here is uh, improvements to write performance, and they highlight that below less vacuum impact. So basically these changes don't end up in the wall stream and less total wall or write ahead log. But this has some significant disadvantages. One, tables are truncated on tr crash recovery. So basically all your data gets wiped out. Now they do show here where you can do a restart and those unlogged tables will persist. But if there's any type of crash, the system doesn't try to maintain any data. It just truncates the tables. Second, unlogged tables can only be accessed on the primary, not the replicas. So again, the only use case for this is really temporary use cases. And then three, unlogged tables cannot be used in logical replication or physical backups. So definitely a lot of advantages. And what I always say is if you care about your data, don't put it in an unlogged table. But if you have temporary data, like maybe you're loading some data and you need a staging ground before you place it in final tables, you could use unlogged tables for that purpose because if something crashes, you could always restart that data loading process. But the reality is a lot of times I just use temporary tables, but unlogged tables could be advantageous if you actually want it to cross multiple sessions or maybe you're trying to load data in parallel. There may be some use cases for it, but I haven't used a lot of unlogged tables. But this blog post goes into a lot of detail about how they work and showing different performance implications in terms of the advantages and then some of the disadvantages that were discussed. Now, what they do say is you can also convert a table from logged to unlogged and from unlogged to logged. So there may be some use cases where you want to set up a table quickly and then turn logging on it. But just be aware, when, once you turn on that logging, a lot of things are going to be written to the wall because it has to now set up this table for crash recovery. But if you want to learn more, definitely check out this blog post. Next piece of content, waiting for Postgres 16, cumulative IO statistics with pgstat.io. This is from pganalyze.com. And they're talking about a new feature in 16 called pgstat.io. So basically it takes the concept of like pgstat statements, which records cumulative queries being run against the system. Stat.io records cumulative IO activity on the database and breaks it out by the backend being used in the context, it looks like here. And it records the reads, the writes, the extends, which extends objects to store more data, as well as highlights evictions, reuses, and f-syncs. So this is a lot of detail that wasn't present before. And this post mentions it's due to some of the groundwork late in 15 that has enabled this feature to now come to fruition. And this post goes over a lot of the advantages in terms of being able to really narrow down the different IO activity and what's happening so you can potentially figure out performance problems. I mean, particularly 
talks about uh, shared buffer evictions because sometimes when you want to read a lot of data, you have to evict a lot of things from the shared buffers, which has an I.O. implication. So this can help narrow down and understand exactly what's going on with your I.O. systems, as well as how much vacuum is being used. So this is a really great improvement. And if you want to learn more about it, definitely encourage you to check out this blog post. Next piece of content, type constraints in 65 lines of SQL. This is from supabase.com. And they're talking about they want to create a data type in Postgres called semantic versioning. So they want to support showing the major version dot minor version dot patch version hyphen then maybe pre-release plus uh, metadata associated with it. So that's a pretty complex type. So how they handled it is they first created a composite type by doing create type and they're pending an integer for the major, minor, and patch. Then they're using a text array for pre-release information and a text array for the build metadata portion. So that gives you the basic structure, but there's no constraints other than the individual data types that prevent invalid semantic versions from being created. So then what they did is they created a domain, which is your own custom type that you can apply constraints to. So for example, the major portion of the semantic versioning they said is not null and the value must be greater than or equal to zero. And they applied that same thing to the minor and the patch integers as well. And then they put a regular expression constraint on the pre-release and the metadata. So now they have some control of being able to reject invalid versions. And then the next step is presenting it because as it's stored, once you present it, it's just going to present it as three integers in two text arrays. So they show that example here, which is not appealing and is not the proper format. So how they handled the format is they actually created a custom function that outputs the data in precisely the correct format. So this is a great post using custom types and custom domains to be able to present a highly complex data type. And if you want to learn more, definitely check out this blog post. Next piece of content, should you use car, varcar, or text in PostgreSQL. This is from MaximOrloff.com. And we've seen this discussed previously in previous episodes of Scaling Postgres, but this was a very succinct description on what has seemed to become the accepted path. In that car or character is fixed length, so it's always going to use the number of characters you set aside. So it's gonna store a little bit larger than the other two our car in text. But the important thing to realize is that there's no performance advantage in Postgres for any of these. So any of these can be used. And because you get a, the benefit of space savings with a far car and a text, it makes more sense to use one of those. But the other issue that this discusses is when you enforce a maximum length, you've now limited yourself. And if you need to change the size, increase it, you're essentially going to have to change the data type. So the better solution is to just use the text data type, and if you need constraints, do a check constraint to do it. So he has an example here of using a check constraint. So basically for storing text or strings, the best approach for Postgres now seems to be just use the text data type, and if you need to or want to limit it, use a check constraint. But if you want to learn more, definitely check out this blog post. Next piece of content, UUIDs versus serials for keys. This is from thebuild.com. And we've seen this discussion before. I think we've even had this discussion on the Rubber Duck Dev Show, whether you should use UUIDs or big ints for primary keys. And his opinion was there may be a better way to ask that question. One, should your keys be random or sequential? And two, should your keys be 64 bits or larger? Because you could use a big int that is random. 
or you could use it as sequential. And there's also ways to get UUIDs that have a component that are sequential in nature. Now, being sequential has advantages for performance. So the more random, the more difficult it is to insert and update values in Postgres, or you're going to have some sort of performance set. The other issues he discusses is should the keys be 64 bits or larger? And he states that working with 128 bit values is actually more difficult to address. I mean, you're moving more data around than the 64 bits. But every time I have this discussion, I kind of go back to, it depends on where you're ID is being generated. If it's being generated outside the database, UUIDs make a ton of sense because presumably they should be created in unique fashion and you just store those in your database. If the database is producing them, then to me it makes more sense to make it a big int or, and make it sequential. And if you need randomization, do that in a separate column like you're wanting to present something to the public, for example. So that way you get the advantage of performance by having a sequential integer ID, at least for most of your keys. And if there's anything external, go ahead and rely on a UUID for that. But definitely some insights into this discussion if you want to take a look. Next piece of content, avoid Postgres performance cliffs with multi-exact IDs and foreign keys. This is from pganalyze.com. And this is the next episode of Five Minutes of Postgres. And they cover a post from last month talking about a foreign key pathology to avoid. Now we covered this in a previous episode of Scaling Postgres. And this is where you have a streaming service and you have one streamer that suddenly has millions of viewers. And if you have a foreign key relationship from millions of rows to that one row, that one streamer row, you're going to be producing a ton of multi-transaction IDs trying to track I think it's the uh, four key share lock that's happening on that row and you can run into performance problems. Well, Lucas goes into more depth on this and even covers an instance where somebody was seeing poor performance or so real life scenario in the second post he covers. So if you want to hear about a real world issue where something like this happened, as well as his perspective on this, definitely check out his piece of content. Next piece of content, PostgreSQL patch of interest to me using the system CA pool for certificate verification. This is from softwareandbooze.com. And he's talking about PSQL, or I believe a libpq in general, when it sets up SSL for communication with Postgres, it actually looks in a specific location on the client for the certificate. And that is in the home directory in a .postgresql hidden directory for the root cert. So basically this has to be in the same place every time. So it doesn't look at where all the other certificates are stored in the local system. It only looks in this one place. And it also causes problems if you need to connect to more than one database server, you can only have this one root certificate. Well, there's enhancement that will hopefully be coming in 16 where you can specify the SSL root cert to be system. So then it will know to look in your system's certificate authority pools. So it won't be looking at this one location in all cases. So this sounds like a great enhancement. And if you want to learn more about that, check out this blog post. Next piece of content, PostgreSQL finding the current timestamp. This is from cyber.postgresql.com. And they're talking about the three different timings that you can get in Postgres. One is the real time, one is the statement time, and one is the transaction time. Now, the most common time component I use, and that's just because what comes to mind immediately is now. But now is actually the transaction time. 
So whenever you start a transaction, that is the time it's going to record throughout the transaction. So you can see here, three different statements were run, but they are all at the same time within this transaction. So now is the transaction time. There's also a statement timestamp, which is the timestamp for each statement. So here you could see no matter how many times you call statement timestamp, even with a slight delay with sleep, you're always going to get the same timestamp for that particular statement. But the actual real time, in other words, that's going to give you the exact time every time that function is run, you use the clock underscore timestamp. So that essentially gives you real time. So if you want to learn more, you can check out this blog post. Next piece of content, get the most out of PostgreSQL using PSQL with must-known features. This is from databaserookies.wordpress.com. And he talks all about his favorite features in PSQL, from defining what code editor you want to use, to being able to change your password without showing it visually on the screen, setting up custom aliases within PSQL, using the shortcut table to select everything from a table, monitoring the output using the watch command, using gexec to execute multiple SQL queries based upon an, a previous query, and echoing all internals query using the hyphen capital E option. So definitely a great set of features, and if you want to learn more about these, check out his blog post. Next piece of content, ranking data with SQL window functions. This is from AntonZ.org, and he's taking an employee table with different salary, and he's going to rank those salaries in different ways. Now, this is a quite a long blog post, but it goes through step-by-step step on setting up window functions to do each part of the query. So if you want to get more familiar with Windows functions, definitely encourage you to check out this piece of content. He also covers more than just PostgreSQL, I believe, and it works also on uh, MySQL and SQLite as well, apparently. Next piece of content, exploring row-level security in PostgreSQL. This is from pg-.io. So if you're interested in learning more about row-level security, you can definitely check out this blog post. Next piece of content, Postgres wall files and sequence numbers. This is from crunchydata.com. And they're talking about understanding the difference between the wall files that are being generated in your system and the actual sequence numbers that you can query on the system to know more about where you're at versus what's being written. So if you want to understand more about that, definitely check out this blog post. Next piece of content, listen to database changes with Postgres triggers and Elixir. This is from peterulrich.com. Now, this is very Elixir heavy in terms of the use case of setting up a listen notify. There is some SQL in here, like you can see where he's performing the notify with a particular name and a payload. But I believe his listen is very Elixir heavy because he relies on a library. But if you use that language, maybe you would be interested in this. Next piece of content. Go and PostgreSQL FOSTIN 2023 talk. So whereas the previous post was about Elixir, this one focuses on Go and Postgres. So definitely a talk to check out if you use both of those. Next piece of content, storing network addresses in Oracle versus PostgreSQL versus SQL Server. This is from MigOps.com. And if you're migrating from one of these databases to another, this covers how network data types are stored in each of these databases to understand better how to convert data between them. Next piece of content, there was another episode of Postgres FM this week. This time it was on real-time analytics. So if you want to learn how to handle that better in Postgres, definitely check out their episode. You can listen to it or watch it on YouTube. 
Next piece of content, the PostgreSQL Person of the Week is Takamichi Osomui. If you're interested in learning more about Takamichi and his contributions to Postgres, definitely check out this blog post. And the last piece of content, we did have another episode of the Rubber Duck Dev Show this past Thursday afternoon. This one was on getting stuff done. So if you're a developer and want to be more efficient in your work, we definitely welcome you to check out our show to see if our discussion might be of benefit to you. That does it for this episode of Scaling Postgres. You can get links to all the content mentioned in the show notes. Be sure to head over to scalingpostgres.com where you can sign up to receive weekly notifications of each episode. Or you can subscribe via YouTube or iTunes. Thanks.